Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, a conversation with Jessica Bruder, who's the author of Nomadland, the book that became the movie that in recent weeks swept the Academy Awards. Jessica's book began as a piece for Harper's in 2014 and then grew into a book in 2017. And she has a lot to say about what it's like to, to shepherd a project from an idea to a magazine piece, to a book, to a movie, but also a lot to think about in terms of this, the financial state of the country, people's precariousness in terms of their economic situation, and how COVID may change that and put us in a whole new realm. I'm really happy to be joined today by Jessica Bruder. Thanks for having me, Kyle. So what was it like watching this Oscar telecast? It was strange. Um, I don't usually watch the award shows. I'm a big book nerd, but less of a movie person. And I was actually out in Los Angeles helping Linda May and Swanky, two women who were in the book and ended mm-hmm. up starring in the movie, uh, get ready. Uh-huh. And I felt like I was sending my elders off to the prom. I mean, when they were getting into the limo, it was really kind of amazing. You're like a stylist. I am not like a stylist. Have we met? That's not your job. But was that what you were doing, or what? What do you mean? What do you mean getting helping them get ready? Yeah, I was out there on the moral support squad. So they were in quarantine for a few days before the Oscars, and I was at the hotel with them and. there when they were getting ready, doing some documenting for their families and, you know, just getting stuff that they needed and yeah. uh, being around, which was cool. I ended up going to some of the after parties and getting to catch up with people who uh, were involved with the film too. So it was a nice reunion. Yeah. Everything I've read um, about the path of the piece to the book, to the movie, it sounds like, in the pantheon of experiences that a writer could have in dealing with Hollywood, yours is a good one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's scary, particularly when you're introducing people to your sources, right? I mean, it's, it's a very intimate sort of adaptation, uh, but going into the project, knowing Francis McDormand's past work, having seen the writer by Chloe Zhao, I figured if anyone could pull off adapting this book, which is not really a typical Hollywood fair, uh, that those two could. Yeah. And you, you, your role was, um, you gave them, you helped them with research. Right. And I read, I read some of you gave them sort of stuff that didn't make it, um, notes, uh, recordings and stuff that didn't make it into your work. Is that right? Yeah. And you know what it's like, there's always so much B-roll when we're reporting. I feel like I report 10 levels just to tell two. Yeah. So I had tons of ephemera from the dead company town of Empire, from just being out on the road reporting. And it was neat. Some of the photos of like the laundry room at the Desert Rose, this RV park, you know, there's a puzzle on the table and they put a puzzle on the table. Like it was interesting to see what details they picked up um, from all that primary source material. Yeah. And was there any with when you went to your sources and say, hey, these people are interested in doing this movie. And uh, I mean, I take it that you didn't position yourself as you're not you didn't you you didn't think of yourself as the person. It's not my job to like sell these people. on. This. No, like, not at all. Not, right. Yeah. Um, 
How much reluctance did you get from them or did you see from them? They were pretty open, frankly. Um, I remember calling Linda May because uh, Chloe Zhao, the director, wanted to meet her. Uh, and she'd asked me if I thought Linda would be good on screen. And I said, you know, Linda is amazing to document because she's herself, whether she's talking to me or her daughter or the grocery store clerk, she's not putting it on. So maybe that'll transfer. So Chloe wanted to go see her. And I remember Linda saying, "Uh uh-oh, I've been doing a lot of construction here. I've got to clean up. I've got to take a load of construction materials to the dump. And she sounded stressed out. And I said, Linda, this doesn't have to happen. This isn't. um," And she said, no, no, it's fine. So, uh, you know, I I was not at all pushing people. And, And that's actually... Even when I'm out reporting, I'm not usually pushing people. If do, people don't want to talk to me, they don't want to talk to me. And maybe they'll come around, but yeah, I don't push. It, it, movies always seems like sort of a siren to a lot of writers that I know. And, and they sort of get this taste for it and like get hooked. Um, what about you? <laughs> you Are you like, wow, I mean, this is cool. And I want to, I want to think about this for, for, for future work or, or not. Um, I'm definitely like, wow, this is cool, but it just also seems like something of an oddity. It's just such, even for Hollywood, it seems like the story just took such an unusual path, um, that it's, uh, it's something where if it intersects with the work I'm doing in any way again, that would be cool, but I'm going to keep trying to tell stories in the way I know how to tell them, which is primarily print. But, uh, you know, sometimes there are opportunities to collaborate. I did a short film with director Brett Story on Amazon's Camper Force program. Yeah, and I love that. I love that. Thank you. Like that was yeah. a blast. I love working with other people. So much of what we do can be isolating. Yeah. So um, I'm totally open to doing stuff with film and other people, um, but I I don't think I'm going to do some kind of complete reinvention pivot here. I I, I have so so much stuff I'm curious about, but one thing that's always, that was on the top of my mind was. Um, just knowing how much you know this subculture and the kind of underlying issues that created it, what is your sense of what the the lockdown has done to people who are in this precarious economic situation around the country? Is it are we going to enter enter a phase where we're just going to be uh, overwhelmed by the need of people who have been squeezed economically, or do you have a sense? I'm concerned about what happens when the eviction moratoriums are lifted. We know that the CDC order has been challenged, that a federal judge, you know, just basically said this is unconstitutional. Um, And I'm concerned because so many people are just keeping their shelter because of that. Um, And I'm concerned that there could be a lot more people using vehicles those last um, of shelters left using vehicles as shelters of last resort yeah. when people are able to evict them easily again. So that's the big crisis that I've got my eye on right now. So that's in general. Um, mm-hmm. And what about specifically with older people, older Americans um, who were the subject of, of especially the, um, the camper workforce project? Yeah, I mean, I, a lot of the problems I saw when I was out on the road are still there. Um, yeah. Retirement finance in America is a mess. Uh, after the New Deal, we had this, they called it the three-legged stool. You were supposed to 
rely on social security, private pensions, and investments or savings. Uh, Pensions morphed into 401ks, which pretty much outsourced all the risk to the worker. A lot of people got their savings obliterated in 2008. And social security was never meant uh, on its own to hold people up. And particularly women of a certain generation were not, you used to be able to have a one income household and raise a family and even lift a family out of poverty, even if somebody, you know, the breadwinner was a full-time minimum wage worker. And now that's just impossible. And also for many of the women I met on the road, they had spent less time in the workforce. They were subject to the gender pay gap. They had taken a time out for the unpaid labor of caregiving. So their social security was often on the low side. Um, so these things concerned me when I was out reporting. They still concern me. And, uh, you know, Biden so far has turned out to uh, be bringing a, a lot more. There's a lot more progressive talk than I think people expected. And, mm. you know, a lot of talk of this kind of new, new deal, essentially. So, you know, I have my fingers crossed, but I'm I'm not holding my breath either. What are you working on now? I can't talk about that, Kyle. Journalists listen to this. <laughs> I don't want to get scooped. Uh, it's a, but it's a, it's a long form magazine project. Uh, yeah. So I want to talk to you about what your sense is of the kind of state of long form writing. I, I read a hilarious fact about when you pitched your original story that was the basis of Nomad, Nomadland to Harper's in 2014, that they offered you two nights in a hotel to report the story. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. and that led you to 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 live in a tent. To yeah. right. Um, I think that's just that's ridiculous and hilarious somehow to me. In a weird way, it might have ended up helping because it was yeah. pretty cold out, and everybody thought it was so absurd that I was out there in a tent that it might have made them a little more inclined to talk to me. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. It seemed a little boundary breaking in a way, but it meant that I could spend a couple of weeks out there really getting to know people and immerse. And I wouldn't have gotten the story if I'd parachuted in, yeah. uh, spent two nights at a hotel and left. It never would have happened. Yeah. But I did submit Harper's my shower receipts at the end, just because I thought it was funny. Yeah. When I was, they did honor my shower receipts. So I was fully reimbursed for my lathering. I mean, I wonder what, what the sort of takeaway that editors are going to have from the last year is in other words like okay so nobody traveled basically or very few people traveled uh people did reporting on the cheap from their apartments or you know with limited travel it was fine um maybe we don't need to invest all this time and money in getting people to where they want to be do you fear that oh of course i fear that um and I, i think it is amazing what reporters were able to do with so little in-person time. I wish I remember the name of the woman who wrote it, but there was that piece in California Sunday that mm-hmm. reported on the Kirkland nursing home Yeah, when COVID was starting and the detail yeah. was so intimate and it, it was just in- incredible what she did over the phone. But I feel like there are certain things you only get in person because you can't observe anybody over the phone, right? Yeah. You can't watch people in their habitats doing their things. You only get what people tell you. And that's dangerous, particularly in an era where everybody's so media conscious and savvy about the image that they want to project to the world. Everybody is a personal PR unit. Mm. It it wasn't that way when I started out years ago. I I think that's gotten worse. So I'm worried that 
the news will get softer if we don't have people on the ground listening, but also watching. Yeah, I mean, I I don't you you are not representative of you know magazine journalists in the country. I mean, you have this amazing you have this amazing body of work behind you. You work for some of the best magazines in in the country, and so your your view I think is is unique and really in a way. But I just wondered how you sort of see the 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 vitality and the health of of the magazine world that you sort of uh, write into. Uh, I mean, I just look at like the decline just in the number of titles, but also in the ambition of, of some of the titles. I mean, there's still great work being done, but there's not, I mean, I think it's fair to say there's not as much of it. Yeah. Um, And what's going to turn that around? Mm. Well, hopefully really good reporting. (laughs) Um, that that makes What's it who's going to fund it. I'm not sure. You know, I, I look at investigative newsrooms that are using nonprofit models right now. There, there are a couple in California. I think Voice of San Diego is one of them. Yeah. Forgive me, I'm butchering that. Um, yeah. Because we know that a market economy typically underproduces things that are socially good, but don't throw off a lot of cash. And yet, in cities, we managed to have something like an opera, right? We managed to keep the arts alive. Um, I think there have got to be other ways to do it. And I know uh, other models are out there, but in terms of just funding investigative deep dives, it's it's a challenge. I know a lot of magazines these days are really ratcheting down IP clauses in their contracts. I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this as well, in terms of wanting every right in perpetuity uh, Mm -hmm. to the material that somebody brings in, whether Mm -hmm. it's um, film rights, book rights, and uh, hoping basically that their magazine articles will be spun off into film and thinking that's where the real money could be. And I don't think that's healthy either because then you're looking for stuff that's Hollywood friendly, which is the opposite of what I was doing. I mean, Nomadland is like the least likely candidate for this, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it lacks the ingredients of youth, wealth, celebrity, sex, violence. We got none of any of that. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I worry what happens when magazines and magazine writers are catering towards Hollywood, when people see that that's where money remains and they try to kind of stick their funnel in that direction. So, yeah, I wish I had an answer. I don't. Do you think about that when you think about your own work and the stories that you want to pursue? Do you think that? Um, do you think about like, well, this story needs to be told and increasingly there are fewer people who have the bandwidth to do it. So I, I have a sort of obligation. I have an added obligation to do this piece or is that too, it's too much to take on for you. I mean, is, is that like not a way to think about how you think about stories? Um, I think about stories when they're important, but they also just nag me and won't leave me alone. For reasons that, frankly, aren't always entirely obvious. Mm. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. It, it, when, I, when I'm teaching, I call it the haunted nugget, which makes no sense at all. But I almost picture just this little spectral thing kind of hanging over your shoulder. You know, you're you're running through possibilities when you're trying to sleep. Um, that's kind of how I know I'm onto a good story, is I, I can't quit it. What drew you to Edward Snowden? <laughs> um 
nothing directly. I mean, I, I was basically the unwitting mule for the entirety of the NSA archive, which showed up at my apartment, uh, which is not the most secure apartment in the world. We've had like a lot of kind of porch pirate package theft going on, but thankfully the archive made it. Um, yeah, I mean, what happened was Dale Maharaj had been spending time with Laura Poitras and unbeknownst to me, she was going to receive this delivery. She didn't know if it was a setup. They didn't know if, um, they didn't know what it was. They didn't know if Snowden, who wasn't really Snowden yet, they didn't know who he was, uh, if any of it was legit. So it came here and things just seem to get more absurd after that because, Mm -hmm. You know, when I think of national security leaks and stuff, I just think of people with very sophisticated um, kind of source protection, op security skills, and just some of the stuff that happened really cracked me up. I mean, for example, he wrote as the return address, B. Manning. Uh Um, And I was just thinking, oh, my God, like with all of this at stake, you know, I I love a bad joke as much as the next person, but Mm. I I don't know why you do something like that. And, and you wrote about it and you wrote a book with Dale. Um, mm-hmm. um, has it, has it, if you, I mean, you were, you were like, you were unwitting and, and you just sort of became part of the story, but has it made you, um, I don't, I mean, I, I, I use this word, like it's very pejorative, but I don't intend it to be, but has it made you a lot more paranoid? Mm, it's made me think. Information? It's made me think a lot more deeply about paranoia. Uh, I remember when we were all freaked out because the information was still getting released and it wasn't clear what was going to happen next, that I I was joking with Dale that the best outcome would be a year after that we would write um, an article or an essay called The Narcissism of Paranoia. As in, (laughs) there's no reason to worry. Look at us. We thought they cared about little old us. Um, So I've definitely spent a lot more time thinking about it and how it shapes people's worldview and outlook. I don't think I've become more paranoid, to be honest. Um, I think I'm very aware of where my data is going, and I try to be a really conscious consumer when it comes to that. But the the topics I tend to gravitate towards, social issues topics, aren't usually things that would put the feds on my tail. (laughs) So I feel like there's a banality of evil factor going on where if my data is being scraped, it's because people want to sell me crap, Yeah, Um, which is sad but true. Um, although being attuned to paranoia, it seems like, um, it turns out was really a really good skill to have during the Trump years, I think, because I think so much of the country was paranoid about what something, um, do you know what I mean? I mean, it's, you know, you know, they were paranoid about, you know, the, the right was paranoid about like stuff getting canceled and their rights being trampled and, and irrational fear, Mm -hmm. um, became a sort of driver of the discourse of the country. Um, oh, so it seems like in a way that sort of, it was a sort of helpful introduction to what we, what we've just lived through. That's a really good point. Well, what do you think? Do you think that was peak paranoia or are we going to hit another apex within our lifetimes? No, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think this was about Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he was the, he was, the vehicle, he was the messenger, the vehicle, but I think it was about something deeper. And, and yeah, I've heard a lot of people, I mean, you know, reading like Masha Gessen uh, mm-hmm. uh, about and about like how close we came and if 
next time, if there's somebody who's actually smart, um, we could be in real trouble. Yeah. Oh, that's what I'm terrified about for the next election, actually. Part of me, I mean, I hope the Southern District is still working away because part of me is concerned that if Trump isn't behind bars, he's going to be on the campaign trail. Um, and or somebody smarter than Trump who could be more of a threat. Yeah, I definitely I do worry about that. If this Biden moment is just kind of a brief, a brief breath between tyrannies and we'll look back at it as bookended and some pretty ugly stuff. So are you still in touch with the um, your nomad land sources? Or, I mean, you were during the movie and but are, are in, in terms of work now that you're doing, are they still involved or or, or is it a different just sort of relationship? They're not involved in my work right now, but they have become braided into my life in ways that I didn't expect. Mm-hmm. So, how so? Well, you know, I'd probably quit Facebook if it weren't for them. Uh-huh. That's interesting. <laughs> um, because they're all on Facebook and it was super helpful when I was reporting. And then that kind of just bled over into still talking to people. It was such a long project and that, you know, the Harper's story came out in August of 2014 and then the book came out in 2017 and then we've got the film now. Um, and I never really lost touch in those in-between moments. Uh, I think it's just part of it when you spend so much time with people. Um, I, I don't know. I think I thought I would walk away a bit more than I did, but the people I met are really compelling and I'm, I'm glad that I've stayed in touch with some of them. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Jessica. Thanks a lot for talking. Thanks for having me. So you can read our coverage of the continuing fallout from the lockdown and what things may look like for journalism going forward. Also, a quick plug, check out our digital magazine, um, which is called The Existential Issue, which you can link to via CJR's homepage at cjr.org. Follow our daily email newsletter, The Media Today, and watch us on Twitter and Facebook. See you next week. Thank you.